Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, magicandalchemy.com is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kate Ballou, and my co-host, Kristen Lizenby. Hello, and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Ballou. And I'm Kristen Lizenby. We're recording this episode during Mercury in retrograde, and, you know, I don't normally subscribe to the whole, like, it's all Mercury's fault thing, but I feel like this has been an unusually difficult retrograde period. What do you think? I would say that's putting it mildly. Okay, good. (laughs) I've had some people ask me about how to best deal with retrogrades, and Kristen, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts here. Um, Plus, we'll definitely need to ask Gris when she's next on, but how do you handle difficult astrological times? I think for me, it's an opportunity to practice non-control. Not that we're ever in control, but we like to pretend we are sometimes. But awareness is a big key. Like, if I wasn't aware of Mercury in retrograde and how it can affect us, I would probably feel extremely frustrated. Like, right now, I'm feeling restless and also a bit scattered, but I'm aware that there's no shame in it. This too shall pass. And I try to remind myself that Mercury, in his deity form, is a divine messenger. He's a shapeshifter. He can cross any boundary— So there are lessons to learn in these moments, if we want. I love that, especially the um, non-control, just like more of an embracing of the unknown. Yeah. Um, And for me, I think I just try to make the most space possible in between my emotions and my reactions, um, because I am not a robot, and I also have an Aries moon. That's not always possible for me, but... I think that slowing reaction times is definitely a form of practical magic. And Channing Nicholas suggests, you know, placing an offering on the altar to Mercury during the shadow period or at the beginning of the retrograde to let Mercury know that you're open to receiving during this time and that you want and are willing to learn the lessons of this particular moment. I love that idea. And, you know, I've also heard that retrogrades are for all of the rewords, rest, recharge, and reassess. Oh my gosh, yes. Naps, the best medicine. Totally. So um, what are we talking about today? Last year, around this time, we were talking dumb suppers, the veil, mm-hmm. and magical plants for Samhain. So listeners, check out episode one if that interests you. But for this go-around, I want to talk about the witch's familiar. Love. One of our listeners wrote to us at the end of the first season asking if we would talk about the witch and her relationship to black cats, spiders, snakes, etc. So thank you. This episode was partly inspired by that request. And when the going gets tough, a witch goes to her familiar. And so it wouldn't be right if we didn't pay homage to these special creatures who've played important roles in some of our favorite stories, guided us in our lives, and have been willing to put their very lives on the line in this partnership. 
reference a witch's familiar, I'm talking about a furry or feathered magical companion. For most of us, that will be one of our pets. And while there are different theories on what makes an animal a familiar instead of a standard pet, the general consensus is that a familiar is a spirit housed in an animal body that came here specifically to work with us and assist in our spiritual development and magical endeavors. And that relationship will likely look different to everyone. I have some witch friends who tell me that one of their cats or dogs insists on sitting and watching their spells. Others have told me that one of their animals has a fondness for crystals, plants, or certain ritual tools. Or in some cases, your familiar might speak to you. In the 90s and early 2000s sitcom, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Sabrina casts a spell that draws in perhaps the most famous familiar ever, a black cat named Salem. And Salem simply talks to Sabrina with words, like there are no meows or purrs to translate, which, when I think about it now, feels like a way to illustrate the easy flow of communication between a witch and her familiar. Salem was immediately who I thought of when we decided to do this episode. Naturally. And even in the modern remake on Netflix, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, Salem still exists, of course, but in this version, he speaks cat, not human. Not that it makes a difference because Sabrina understands him without issue. The other witches in the Spellman house can also speak to him, but to a non-witch, he's just a house cat. Which I think speaks to the bond between a witch and her familiar— Like, your familiar likely knows all your secrets, but wouldn't, and in some cases, couldn't tell. Another famous black cat is Gigi from Kiki's Delivery Service. Um, Gigi goes with Kiki when she leaves home for a year to become a witch, as is tradition. And Gigi flies on Kiki's broom with her, speaks with her openly, and when Kiki hits a rough spot and begins to lose control over her magic, one of her deep sadnesses is that she can't understand Gigi anymore. And their relationship is so tender, and a cartoon cat perfectly posed on a broomstick is just heartwarming. (laughs) So sweet. But, you know, black cats like Salem and Gigi haven't always had it so good. In the 17th century, and likely earlier, when women were being tortured for witchcraft, aka not aligning with the Christian church, the patriarchy cast a shadow on anything related to nature. Nature was seen as uncivilized and also a place where spirits roamed. And since animals also roamed the outdoors, they were believed to be spirits in disguise. According to people who were part of the anti-witch movement, familiars were shape-shifting demons or imps that fed off a witch's blood. This gave witch hunters a way to say, okay, well, yes, that woman might have been at home all day, but she probably sent her familiar to go kill the neighbor's sheep or whatever the crime might have been. And because at that time, the color black was associated with death, darkness, um, nighttime hours, all concepts that were, you know, being re-envisioned by the church, a black animal was seen as exceptionally suspicious. So that means black cats, dogs, crows, ravens, bats were not looked upon kindly. They were feared. And still to this day, black cats are actually 50% less likely to become adopted than cats of a different color, 
I just learned that actually from the Black Cat Rescue website. So adopt black cats. (laughs) (laughs) It's really tragic to think about. Mm -hmm. I know that from... I think the 13th through the 17th centuries, a massive number of Black cats were killed as a way to eradicate witchcraft, the plague, anything seemingly unholy in the Puritan era. And while opinions about Black animals no longer hold that stigma, we can still see some lingering effects from that time. Like how many humans have an aversion to insects and bugs, specifically spiders. And while I don't think there's anything conclusive here, some people believe that a human's relationship to spiders and insects is related to their views of the goddess, death, and the worlds that run parallel to ours that we don't always interact with. Basically the magical realms. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I really like this idea because when I think of spiders, I think of the three sisters of fate who are responsible for weaving and deciding our destiny. I think of Greek goddess Athena and her weaving battle with Arachna. I think of Disney movies and how someone's relationship with a spinning wheel, where things are created, alchemized, is seen as one that will transform your life. We just don't know in which ways. And if anyone is curious, the Three Sisters of Fate and the story of Athena and Arachna are on the Magic and Alchemy blog. Yeah, and I also want to point out that on The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, Hilda Spellman's familiars are a bunch of spiders. True, I totally forgot about that. So, in preparation for this episode, I did some research on a few other familiars and wanted to share some insights into why someone might work with them, what are their gifts, how do they compare with yours, and what magic will you make together? start with the cat. Ancient Egyptians believed that cats possessed the spirit of the goddess, perhaps a nod to their own cat-headed goddess, Bastet. The idea that cats possess goddess qualities, including psychic abilities, is a belief that's been carried into the modern world. Cats can see, hear, and sense energetic fields and vibrations that humans cannot. So in some ways, it feels like cats are the perfect magical companion— They're already experts at straddling this world and the next, and since they have excellent night vision, they can lead us into and through the shadow worlds. My friend Faye wrote a beautiful article on the history of cats and witches, and I'll make sure to link that in our show notes, but I'm going to read kind of some pieces from that, which I think are just especially potent, but... Bastet is the goddess of cats, like you said, and she is depicted as a cat or a woman with the head of a cat and presides over the home, fertility, and protection. So to harm a cat during this time was considered a crime against Bastet herself. Cats were considered to be incarnations of the goddess and were kept by priests at her temple. And Sekhmet, depicted with the head of a lion, is the fiercest hunter known to the Egyptians and a protector of pharaohs, leading them into warfare. In Greek mythology, Diana, goddess of the hunt and moon and teacher of magic and witchcraft, shapeshifts into Lucifer's beloved pet cat to gain entrance into his chamber and seduce him. In Norse mythology, Freya, 
goddess of fertility, war, and death, would lead Valkyries into battle to collect fallen soldiers, riding on a chariot led by two formidable blue cats. And, according to Hebrew folklore, Lilith, notorious for being banished from the Garden of Eden for refusing to be subservient to Adam, in some stories, shapeshifts into a black vampire cat. In this article, Faye describes how cats elicited a much different reaction from medieval society with, according to um, a scholar of medieval and classical history, Dr. Irina Metzler, this is their unapologetically autonomous refusal to be tamed, and that's what made them the symbol of heresy. In her article, Heretical Cats, Animal Symbolism in Religious Discourse, she writes, quote, Medieval people may have wanted to restrict cats to the function of animated mousetraps for the very reason that the cat stands at the threshold between the familiar and the wild. Cats were intruders into human society. They could not be owned. They entered the house by stealth, like mice, and were suffered because they kept the insufferable mice in check. This causes a kind of conceptual tension. While the cat possesses the characteristics of a good hunter— It is useful, but as long as it does, it remains incompletely domesticated. Heretics, too, in a transferred sense, are not completely domesticated, since by challenging orthodox thought and roaming freely hither and thither in their interpretation of religious beliefs, they resemble the bestiary definition of wildness. As symbolic animals, then, cats may be the heretical animal par excellence. End quote. I love that. And in 1233, Pope Gregory issued a public decree that officially associated cats with witchcraft and, more specifically, Satan. This decree was a response to rumored satanic cults in Germany and depicted black cats as part of their devil-worshipping rituals. Some say that this is what led to the mass extermination of cats in Europe, a correlation which is not necessarily agreed upon by historians. Next, we have spiders, who make wonderful companions and familiars for writers, weavers, of course, or anyone who uses their hands to create or influence their reality. The lesson of the spider when it comes to spell work or passion projects of any kind is persistence, which is something I think about pretty often during spider season when there are webs everywhere because I feel bad when I have to break a web for whatever reason, but I also know that the spider will get right back to work making another. I made rules for the spiders in my household. Like, we had a little talk. I told them, don't come near my bed, and we're totally good. And so for the last Mm -hmm. five years, I have not had to kill a spider in my New York City apartment, which is a miracle. (laughs) But is also very different than my relationship with the cockroaches. So... Mm. As you talk about spiders, I, of course, can't help but think about Charlotte, the weaver of um, childhood stories in the book Charlotte's Web. And I love this synopsis of the book I found online. It's Charlotte's Web is the story of a little girl named Fern who loved a little pig named Wilbur and of Wilbur's dear friend, Charlotte A. Cavatica, a beautiful large gray spider who lived with Wilbur in the barn. With the help of Templeton the Rat, 
who never did anything for anybody unless there was something in it for him, and by a wonderfully clever plan of her own, Charlotte saves the life of Wilbur, who by this time had grown up to quite a pig. So maybe Fern was a witch, and we just never knew it. Fern was definitely a witch, (laughs) just saying. Yes. The toad or frog is another creature that pops up in folklore and witchcraft. The toad is associated with both water and land, swampy areas, places that are considered dangerous, but also fertile and wild. In the Christian world, the toad is viewed as evil, a devil in disguise, and while I don't agree with that sentiment, the toad does have ties to the other world. Kate, you might know more about this since I know you write about psychedelics, but from what I've read, it seems like the flying ointment that witches made using psychedelic and magical plants could have also been made using the psychoactive chemicals excreted from the frog. Yeah, the witches in Macbeth by Shakespeare are brewing frogs and newts, you know, fillet of fenny snake in the cauldron and boil and bake, eye of newt and toe of frog. But I wrote about the uh, flying ointment for Double Blind Magazine last Samhain, um, a little psychedelic witchcraft. But basically, witches' salve was made during Samhain, Sabbath days, gathering days, with psychedelic and poisonous plants. So, poison hemlock, monkshood, and henbane, to name a few. And some stories mention frogs as well. Although my teacher of, of poisonous plants, Catherine Soli, had described you know, how unsure we really are about these flying ointment recipes because very little was written down and preserved. Traditionally, witches would simmer these herbs in goose fat to make a salve, and legend has it the salve would then be taken through the membranes of the skin, where skin is the thinnest, so vaginally or under the arms. And some people think this is kind of where the imagery of witches on broomstick comes from, as witches might apply their salve to the broomstick before taking it for a ride. Um, So this is a quote here, but As a tool, the broom is seen to balance both masculine energies and feminine energies, which explains why it's so often used symbolically in marriage ceremonies. And this is according to an article entitled, Why Do Witches Ride Brooms?, which we'll link in the show notes. But the more likely connection with this has to do with the fact that the users of witches' brew were, in a very practical sense, using their ointment-laden broomsticks to get high. So... They were using their brooms basically to fly. And these salves were made for journeying and psychedelic experiences. And in their minds, they would then disappear across the night to go explore the mysteries that exist in the beyond. And sometimes these women are depicted riding on the back of an animal familiar. So a duck, goat, pig, wolf, or cat. There is, of course, also combo, which I'm no expert in, but it is a sacred medicine made from a tree frog and used in shamanic practices. So my friend Charlotte at the Ancestor Project does a lot of educational work around this, so definitely check them out if you're interested. Um, But Kristen, have you seen the old version of the film The Wicker Man? Um, Not the Nicolas Cage version? Uh, Many, many years ago. Yeah, there's this scene in there where, where this child has to fully swallow a toad in order to cure a sore throat. I think there's just, you know, so much out there about these wild, and bizarre, and beautiful creatures. Yeah, I think I need to watch this movie again. But keeping in the reptilian family, I think the snake or the serpent could potentially rival the cat 
for the witchiest familiar. Because the serpent is everywhere in mythology. We see her in the Garden of Eden, on the staff of Asclepius, which, if anyone doesn't know, is a winged staff with two snakes encircling it that we often see in emergency rooms or hospitals. The Egyptian goddess Sashat, the creator of astrology and the spirit who guards the Akashic records, often takes the form of a serpent, symbolizing her dominion over cosmic and occult knowledge. I have such a fear-love relationship with snakes, and it's true. They really are everywhere in myth, folktale, mythology. Um, It makes me think about, in Ireland, how St. Patrick became famous for driving the snakes out of the country and was even credited with a miracle for this. But, you know, what most people don't realize is that the serpent was actually a metaphor for early pagan faiths. Um, And St. Patrick brought Christianity to the Emerald Isle and did such a good job of it that he practically eliminated paganism from the country. Yeah, St. Patrick's story is really interesting, and I definitely think it's one that, I don't know, maybe in a future episode we can dive more into. Definitely. But next on my list of familiars is the raven. Like we've seen with other black creatures, the raven became aligned with evil partly because of the witch hunts. But in reality, ravens are not bringers of death and despair. They are messengers from the gods. Because of this, ravens are often associated with divination and may appear when the veil is waning thin. Ravens also remind me of Bran the Blessed, with Bran basically translating to blessed, crow, or raven. Yeah, I like that. And while not the same as the raven, the owl is also a symbol of knowledge and otherworldly wisdom. And I think it might ring true for most flying familiars because they're so deeply connected with the element of air. You know, they're always going here, there, wherever the wind takes them. They can really help expand our boundaries and perspectives. Much like the owl who accompanies Athena. Yeah, I actually have a fake owl that sits above my desk in honor of her. Mm -hmm. So I've been talking a lot about small, potentially indoor animals, but a familiar can also live outside, like the goat. As a Capricorn son, I have a lot of love for goats. They're go-getters, they're ambitious, determined, and also really curious. In Greek mythology, there is the half-human, half-goat god Pan, who was playful and lusty and represented the fertile spring and summer months. It was the goat's sexual appetite that likely encouraged the Christian church to start associating the goat with the devil. But when you look back further and see the famous horns of plenty overflowing with that year's harvest— and you learn that some versions of Venus and Aphrodite used to ride a goat familiar, you realize that goats are pretty awesome. (laughs) And that's not to say I'm going to practice candle magic at my altar with my goat sitting patiently at my side, but they will happily walk into the woods with me and point out all sorts of edible plants. So as a green witch, I appreciate that. It's a lesson in plant magic, but also a unique bonding experience that might seem mundane to the untrained eye, but I can say for certain is pure magic. Okay, but are you sure? (laughs) I would just love to see Juniper at your altar with you, so just, you know, maybe reconsider. Okay, full disclosure, all of my goats (laughs) have been in my house at one time or another, but they always eat my plants and are definitely outdoor animals. 
you should see Banjo when I'm clearing our apartment. Like, he just follows me from room to room and sits and watches. And so dogs, I think, are another one we should mention um, just because, you know, my familiar is a dog. But I also can't help but think about Artemis and Diana. Artemis got her hunting dogs from Pan, who we just spoke about, in the forest of Arcadia. And Pan gave Artemis two black and white dogs, three reddish ones, and one spotted one. And these dogs were famous hunters, even being able to hunt lions. Hecate is also depicted with hellhounds, and her hellhounds were seen as guarding the gates to the underworld. She is sometimes also viewed as having a canine form herself in some of the writings, either as a single dog or even as a triple-headed one sometimes. Like the legend she is. True. (laughs) But before we go, Kristen, do you have any advice for someone looking to practice a little animal spirit communication? Yeah, I just always say to speak to them. Mm -hmm. It's funny. I think sometimes we assume that other creatures or beings won't talk back to us, so we don't even try to talk to them. But a lot of people would be pleasantly surprised at who and what responds if we extend an invitation. I also think that your time is one of the most valuable things you can give anyone, animals included. I definitely have a stronger bond with one of my goats, Canella, who broke her femur a little over a year ago while doing parkour in the yard. No. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so I brought her in the house, had a vet come, set the leg. But for about five weeks, every day I would go out and forage baskets full of herbs and grasses for her because she was completely immobile. And I would just sit and talk with her because I knew she was lonely. She couldn't play with the other goats. And even though it was really hard for me because I knew she was in pain and so many people kept telling me to put her down, she kept telling me no. So I guess my advice is pretty practical. No witchy secrets here. Just talk to them, listen, bring them gifts. Thank you so much for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tame Wild. Again, we're Kate Ballou and Kristen Lizenby. You can find us online at K8Ballou and at East and Alchemy. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at Tamed Wild or on the blog magicandalchemy.com. Tune into next week's episode where Kate and I discuss boundaries. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mode it be or something better. Until next time.